it's staggering. You know, now there are just about over 900 serial rapist hits across 48 states just from testing the over 11,000 untested rape kits in Detroit. Hello, and welcome to On Assignment, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes of award-winning journalism here at Columbia Journalism School. I'm Abby Wright. I run the prizes department here, and I am joined, as always, by my colleague, Lisa Cohen, who runs one of those prizes, the DuPont Columbia Awards. Hello, Lisa. Hi, Abby. Today, we're going to feature a conversation that you had recently after a screening of one of our Film Fridays documentary series, this one featuring a recent 2019 DuPont winner called I Am Evidence from HBO. And the film, I Am Evidence, takes a hard look at a pretty outrageous phenomenon, the fact that there are hundreds of thousands of rape kits that have been discovered sitting untested around the country in storage facilities, in closets, and evidence rooms. That's right. It was produced by the actress Mariska Hargitay, who is known and loved by many as the tough but tender Lieutenant Olivia Benson on Law & Order SVU, which... That stands for Special Victims Unit, if you've been living under a rock for the last 20 years. We're big fans of hers, and this subject is one that's near and dear to her heart and has been for some time because of the role she plays on TV. The filmmakers set up Mariska's involvement in the film really nicely at the top. We learn that because she plays this empathetic sex crimes detective on TV, She started getting, in real life, an avalanche of letters from survivors who would tell her chilling details about what had happened to them. Yeah, and in the film, what was so poignant was that we learn that she was often the first person that many of these women had even ever told about their assault. So she set up something called the Joyful Heart Foundation to do advocacy work on behalf of survivors everywhere, and that helped lead, in fact, to the making of this incredible film. Untested rape kits have certainly been around for a long time, but it's still very timely, especially in the current climate of the Me Too movement, when people are perhaps more open to taking action. And it has a terrific narrative approach as well, following four different women's cases in different cities around the country as a way to weave in a lot of information about what it's been like for them and what the causes of the situation are. And spoiler alert, those causes can be gender, race, and class. And they talk about, you know, what the repercussions are of all these untested kits. Um, Fascinating moments, for example, about how serial rapists are being overlooked because these untested kits don't tie their rapes together. Yeah, so they can continue committing these heinous crimes, you know, year after year. And the evidence is there. It's just not being looked at. So I talked to the directors, Trish Adlisic and Gita Gandvir, to hear about all of that and especially about these incredible women who were so open and vulnerable in this film and the ways that the filmmakers dealt with them so as not to be exploitative. And as a heads up, you'll be hearing from both of the directors. So there's two voices. First up is Trish Adlisek, but we're not going to identify each one as they speak. So here it is now. It's an edited conversation with Trish Adlisek and Gita Gandbeer, the directors of I Am Evidence. We saw from the film how Mariska Hargitay got involved in this, but how did you, how did then you come into the picture, both of you? I actually worked on Law and Order SVU for 14 years. Uh, when I met Mariska and I saw how she was approaching the character with such great compassion. We hadn't seen that before, really. You know, there was police woman, but it wasn't about rape cases. And she really brought a lot of grace and dignity to how she handled these cases, and survivors really connected. And then we all connected. And when I started doing documentaries, 
when I became affected by an issue, she said, we've got to do something together. And it was obvious. It was such an, it's such an important topic. But I think something that was really profound to me, and I, you know, we made sure it ended up in the film, is Mariska's own experience, which was, that really spoke to the lack of, um, sort of, of resources and of care for right. survivors in the, in the country. The fact that she, as a television actor, playing the role of uh, you know a character on SVU received you know what she said started out as like a couple hundred letters and then over years became thousands of of people uh, reaching out to her saying you know I wish you were real I wish your character was real I wish there was someone in my life and revealing their stories to her that I think was and so heartbreaking and profound that you know I think that really was such a call to action. The letters, even, you know, that you see while she's talking about the people writing to her, and you can see some of the words and people saying, I've never told anybody this, and you're the person I feel like I can, that will listen and that I can turn to. That's extraordinary. It was very moving to see that, absolutely. And so it's a span of time. We, the story is changing while you're doing the film, right? I mean, there is more publicity about it. There's a Me Too movement going on. Um, and their narratives are changing because their cases are moving through the system. And potentially, there are changes in the policy. I don't know. Can you talk a little bit about what changed between when you started and now? And, and then maybe what might be because of your, your film? I'll speak to the the sort of the the obviously the Me Too movement, which came about during the time that we were making our film. I mean, I think as you could see, there is a lot more media out, so there's been a lot more attention paid to the issue and the fact that women have been speaking out and and kind of and essentially bringing sexual assault to the spot into the spotlight. And I think one of the things that, as you see in the film, so many survivors struggle with is the stigma of um, even the act of getting a rape kit done is an incredible act of bravery. Yeah. And um, to be able to come to tell your story to, to anyone after it happens. And I think the Me Too movement has definitely helped to, it is helping to eradicate some of the shame and the stigma around the issue. This film is important because we're giving African-American women a voice. And that was very important to me because in the other films I had seen on sexual violence, it was largely white women. And, you know, uh, as we see now with the R. Kelly case, you know, African-American women's voices have not been heard. I mean, as a white woman, I have, you know, I was molested on the subway. I had an attempted rape at gunpoint when I was in college in New York City. Fortunately, I knew self-defense and I got away, but the police responded to me. And I don't know that they would have if I wasn't who I am. Uh, and so uh, the film has helped elevate the need for better care around race and class. I mean, also poor white women were disregarded as well. And so that was very important to us. And what I can tell you statistically around the film is that we, we track how the film impacts community and legislation. And I recently just spent like two weeks doing building out, like there are 12 states since the film premiered in April that have now put legislation forward and are passing legislation to count, track, and test kits. This is outside of what's already been done 
uh, before the film. So impact, when you talk about what how was the film doing anything, the reason we make these films is to shed light and educate and actually hope that something comes of it. I just want to say but also part of the efforts like between the film and the Joyful Heart Foundation is there is an incredible the website. Joy the Joyful Heart Foundation is Marishka's foundation. Yes, correct. And um, there's an incredible website that's been built and it's basically a database of what is happening, of, of information as much as there is. Apparently there are you know, an estimated hundreds of thousands of rape kits untested around the country, but there is no central sort of database that, that gives this information. But there's a there is a website, and it's www.endthebacklog.org, and you can go to it, and you can see state by state um, what information exists. It's called the Accountability Project, if you go to the website, but also I Am Evidence, the movie, clicks into that website as well. So everyone here can take a look at any state and see where it is. I mean, it's staggering, but you know, now there are just about over 900 serial rapist hits across 48 states just from testing the over 11,000 untested rape kits in Detroit. So you can see it's what a massive public safety issue this is when we don't use the science. It's a crime, you know, and we can prevent crime by using it. And just to, you know, to build on that, the, it's, I mean, when, you, when you, we talk about serial rapists, as you see in the film, people do not necessarily stay in one location, right? So it's like, what happens and in the trucker could affect us, could affect anywhere, in, right. you know, any other state, city in the country. So let's talk a little bit about the women. How did you find them? How did you approach them? How did you find women who were so unbelievably articulate and moving and storytellers of their own right. It's incredible. Calling rape crisis centers um, in Detroit, for example, knowing that it was 83% African-American population, I was looking for someone who might have had an untested kit that we could follow, how uh, if we could help them find their kit, if there'd be a trial. And there was a woman uh, named Kalima and she is with the Sasha Center, she's in the film. So uh, she said, I think I might have someone that you could talk to, and I went to her center, and I saw Erica there with her pink hair, and she was wearing a T-shirt that said, I am evidence, and I, I was like, oh wow, this is gonna be profound, and it really was, and that's... Was that before you had the title for the film, or...? That was before. That became that's how we the got title. the title. <laughs> we had 14 women, and they were all like that. They were all just as, I mean, it's not like, I think the, you know, the decision-making process was really hard. Everyone had a story. Everyone had a, a voice that was equally powerful. And were they all very willing to talk, or was there a process with that as well? There was a process, for sure. I mean, I don't think, um, I mean, I study trauma care, and one of the complaints a lot of survivors shared with me was they didn't feel they were treated very well by reporters. They were abrupt, they were not sensitive, they would ask questions that were not really in line with the story, you know, really inappropriate things, and um, put a lot of thought into the questions. And in fact, Helena, the woman from Los Angeles, she actually wrote the questions for the film, for me, for us to interview. Uh, survivors with because That's I wanted so it to be very survivor-centric and she actually wrote the questions and I asked everyone the same questions as a result. So you had a menu that you worked from that had been sort of 
approved by someone who'd been in a situation like yeah, this. Yeah, but you know, it's organic. It's like yeah. a conversation. So if something come up, we would, you know, spend time with it. But yeah, I think there was a framework for what this experience was like for people. I think what's really interesting, though, in thinking about it and thinking about the process and the questions that were asked um, at the awards the other night, there was the f you know the film on her shoulders and um, which we're showing. Yeah, well, right. And Alexander Wambach, who is the director, said something really profound. She said, "We, as you know, journalists and as filmmakers, really need to think about the questions that we ask." survivors because it is re-traumatizing to ask them to tell their story over and over and over again and that that was really it was very thoughtful you know to make sure that the the retelling of the stories was not was as minimally traumatic as possible so this is um a group of some students who are working on their own films and i want to get as granular as possible to help them out um, what's a good question? What's a bad question? That's really, it depends on what the subject matter is. And doing your homework is really super important to study what you're discussing with someone because when you come prepared, it makes a big difference. I can't say good or bad. I mean, I, you know, but just giving voice, letting people talk and listening is often you find what you need. I think, I think. The, you just hit on something really key, which is oftentimes listening. Sometimes you don't have to, to ask. You may can maybe start with a question. And once someone begins speaking, you don't have to constantly prompt them. They will begin to talk. But I think something I learned on this film, actually, that came out of questions from Helena, specific to, um, to survivors of sexual violence and trauma, was the, the issue of, of really of memory and that people who have experienced terrible trauma, often what they remember is fragmented. And um, particularly for, for, so for people who are survivors of sexual assault, I and mean, Trish and I talked about this, was that you are not meant to say, like, tell me what happened. You have to say, you know, the, the right thing to say might be, and this was in the questions that we were given, is, please, you know, tell me to the best of your ability what you remember. Because it's, they're not gonna remember everything. You know, some people don't remember a attacker's face. They don't, they only remember the gun. They don't remember, you know, they, and or their memory of the order of events is fragmented. So you really have to sort of piece the story together very gently. And, and be very sort of kind and thoughtful and not expect it to be linear. But it was so extraordinary to see them, each one of them told like very strong narratives about what happened to them and I, I was just really dying to know what was, the, what was the phrasing that got that account going. Help me understand, help me understand and allowing for that space and I, remember vividly my experiences with this violence and I think sometimes you know um, people block it out because it's so painful and it comes in triggers and it comes in different ways over time but it's a delicate balance. I was just so struck how brave they were I mean not just to do the interviews with you but this idea that those two women who talked about he took their driver's license and said if you tell anyone I'm coming back and they Despite that, both went to authorities, both subjected themselves to the rape kit, you know, were not heard, obviously, and then were able to tell you about it, were able to sit down and talk about it as candidly as they did. Right, and that's something that no one should ever have in common with someone else, that they share the same rapist, and that was what was so 
shocking to me was this connection and we don't know how many others there are across the country that this man assaulted but I think for Amberly the woman her rape could have been prevented if they had tested Helena's kid as you saw in the film but he was literally living five minutes from where she was living the entire time the three or four years that went by because they hadn't tested her kid What was it like to tell the women that you had interviewed on camera that they weren't going to be in the film? Well, the approach that was taken was to, before the film was locked, to show all of them the film and to see if there was anything that made them uncomfortable or uh, that they would have wanted changed or... It was a collaborative in that way because we really made the film for survivors and if the film didn't serve the people we interviewed, then we weren't doing our jobs very well. So um, Gita was in the edit room and I went on the road and drove between Cleveland and Detroit and California. I don't even remember. <laughs> I just remember a lot of snowy, crazy, rainy weather driving back and forth. But they, you know, one, you know, there was some upset, yes, because, you know, they didn't feel that their story was good enough or important enough or feel validated. And it was the hardest thing, you know, that's why when you, you meet subjects, you know, it's it's such a delicate relationship because everybody's story is equally important, but um, what we discussed was that everybody's stories and what they shared gave the film its voice. It's just 90 minutes. I mean, I wish we could have made a series and done many of them, but it just wasn't that uh, medium at the time we were making the film. I would also say that, just as a note, is that it is probably important to be very honest, you know, as a filmmaker, as a, whatever you're, with whatever you're doing and whoever you're talking to, to tell them, you know, there is an editing process and, you know, we will do the best we can to get your story in. But, you know, we, in the beginning when they sign on, it's like there is that possibility. It is not a guarantee that everyone who we interview will make the film. How are they doing? I mean, can you talk a little bit about, you're still in touch with them, right? Oh, most definitely, yes. This film took almost three and a half years to make, and I actually heard from Erica today. She's doing well. All of them are actually doing really well, and in fact, um, it was very difficult to narrow it down to four women. Gita and I went back and forth, but the women that participated are really, they actually had transformative experiences by being a part of the film. Um, and also we offered therapeutic support, which is unusual. Really? Yes, there was a retreat in Santa Barbara, uh, a healing retreat that they all went to, whether they were in the film or not. And we've invited them to the premieres and they're friends and we stay in touch, so they're doing very well. And one of them was waiting trial, was, there was a trial that was coming up for her case. What's happened with that? He was found guilty. Okay. Yeah, she feels a lot better and her case is now closed, and I think he's getting 15 years. You had amazing access to some of these things. What was great about it t was that you really did feel like you were immersed in it. You felt like you were learning about the subject, not because someone was l talking about it in an interview, but because it was unfolding in front of you, and sort of the information wrapped around the process. So I think that is part of, um, as painful as it was, what you hit on just now is part of the reason we ended up, the stories that we ended up with in the film were stories that you sort of had a 360, more of a 360, you know, uh, um, or surrounding them where we had the survivor's story and that actually correlated with something that was actually happening at the time 
in the department, you know, on the force. The force was actually working on the case, or there was something going on that was active. So we could actually touch on all the different aspects for each of the the cities that we were in. So that was um, it was important to, to being able to tell the full story. I thought the documentary did a great job at exploring like the scope of this issue. I'm curious though, um, if you explored at all, um, what the issue is with training to actually test the rape kits. So you talked a little bit about like police training, but are nurses trained as well? And, and what does that look like? Michael, Michael Moore has an amazing film festival in Traverse City, Michigan. And if you can ever go to it, I strongly encourage you to do so. We were there and um, an emergency room doctor got up and he was moved to tears after the screening and he said, I was trained to administer this rape kit. I was so afraid there was gonna be a victim and I wasn't gonna know how to handle this. And so it made us realize that there isn't enough training and actually there's a forensic nurses association in America and only 13%, last time I checked, which wasn't very long ago, only 13% of emergency rooms in the United States have trained a sexual assault nurse examiners, it's, they're called SANE same, nurses, same. to administer these kits. So we need more education on all fronts, right? So there, there are now police trainings. Dr. Campbell, the woman in the film, is going across the country and other people that study psychology and work in this area are training law enforcement. You know? I was struck also reading about it that it's, it's an hours and hours long procedure. It's hours, yeah. Which is, which is incredibly, as the women recount, invasive and right. traumatizing. And if you don't have, imagine doing it and having someone who is not trained, who's then fumbling through the process. But I think for, uh, I mean, as you can see, what this film is sort of the, obviously there have been news reports and there have been other things, but this is sort of one of the first in-depth investigations into this topic. So there's so much more still to explore. Well, and also I just I want to ask about this note at the end of the film that said that people were given permission to destroy kits before the statute of limitations. On what basis would that be allowed? What's the reason? Um, not enough storage room. Uh, there's many reasons for it. There's um, no laws around it. You know, the victim is deceased. They can't find the perpetrator. You know, there are many reasons and many excuses they'll give you to discard them. But if there were laws, mandatory laws, that saying you can't destroy it for X number of years, 30 years or whatever, this problem wouldn't have occurred. Hi, I have a question about your process. Um, you mentioned calling rape crisis centers and, and how helpful it was that people took your calls. Let's say you got interested in um, the issue of untested rape kits and you want to see if there's a narrative there. You know, is there a film here? What are the stories here? What is a good question I could ask? What are the ways in which you go about doing that initial research to see if that's a viable idea? Talk to the people most affected by it. Talk to people whose kits haven't been tested and that'll start the conversation and that branches you out into how does law enforcement deal with this? Do they have to test these kids? What's it like for a prosecutor? Talk to prosecutors. You know, there's sort of branches around the subject. Anybody and everybody related to the subject matter you want to expose yourself to and learn about and talk to. And I mean, with the internet, there's so much you can find. But through relationships, you really have to get with people because people lead you to other people. Right. So and once you, you, sorry, and you ask them, who else can I talk to when, right. when you get off the phone? 
And I mean, obviously, I think the, the sort of most obvious thing is reading, right? Sometimes it's like these little pockets you have to kind of dig deep because it will be the local news report. You know, it will be something. So it's like you don't, you know, sometimes you have to kind of dig through sources that are, you know, really kind of underexposed in a way, you know, and that will help you find and then contact those people who also who have been re maybe reporting on it. They can lead you to, you know, a gold mine. And never take no for an answer. <laughs> I just wanted to know, so we talked about trauma. I mean, you talked about trauma earlier, and there was a lot of emotions and sometimes tears in the interviews. And I wanted to know what was your position uh, when you started interviewing those people towards, you know, emotion, tears, uh, maybe shutting the camera sometime, or maybe going over, like, having those tears shown in the, I mean, the final cut, things like that. Did, is it a conversation you had with the women before? Is it something you talked about before as well? There were lots of tears, I mean, obviously, but, um, you know, before the interview takes place, you know, we say, if you need a break, if you're not comfortable with something, let me know. We have all the time we need. And um, there were things we could have put in the film that we chose not to, ex expressions of pain and struggle, and it was just too deep for some of them, and we chose not to do it. Uh, out of care for the people that we're sharing with us. But I think it's, um, you know, the thing that's amazing with documentary filmmaking is that you have a lot of time in the edit room and there's not a rush to get like a news story out, like, you know, the nightly news or, so you can really spend time cultivating what is best for the film and best for the subject because you need the subject's support of the film and their voice is gonna really matter in getting the conversation going. I think though too, uh, just to build on that, you also want your subject to forget the camera, ideally. I mean, the most you want it, like, as we mentioned before, you want it to be conversational. So absolutely, beforehand you say, you know, if you need a break, if you need, you know, to get up and use the bathroom, and don't worry, you know, again, because don't worry about repeating yourself. If you said something and you want to do it to say it again a different way, it's fine, you know, just to make them as comfortable as possible. But once you start going, once you start talking to them and they start opening up, um, you just let them go. You really just let them roll and you listen, you know? And, and if they start crying, you let them cry, you know? Maybe you can obviously keep a box of tissues nearby and hand it to them, but I don't think you want to, you don't interrupt it, you know, because sometimes it's very cathartic for them. When you ask the question, sometimes it's good if your subject can say, the question in their answer a little bit because when you're in the edit room you're like oh god i have to figure out how to put no, this that's together. You're, that's absolutely right that's a rule the one thing you said you have to get them to repeat it's, to give you context that's all it's tricky though because when you say to somebody try and work the question into your answer then they immediately become self-conscious so th there's a sort of a funny way that you have to tease it out it doesn't work all the time but it does half the time and the half time that it does work it it'll pay off basically when you, so you say to someone so you know were you do you live in Detroit you don't want them to say yes you know you want them to say yes I live in Detroit or I live in Detroit so right. that's the the struggle and you kind of have to maybe with some of the easier stuff get them used to it talk me through no, that's usually, that's usually how I start a sentence. That's how I want to talk, talk me, me through. through. Um, so on that point with uh, the interviews, um, the Cooley, I think his last name was Cooley, the L.A. Oh, yes. Attorney? He was uh, the former person. district attorney. Yes. The district the attorney. The back yes. Back in LA, yes. So 
I know. I noticed there was a part in the interview where he was like, "Okay, this is all false. This was not credible." And I heard some voices <laughs> in that part. Yeah. So I want to know, like, how was it like interviewing him, and did you express any emotions during that time? That was that was a heated. It became a heated interview. Unfortunately, um, he was the former LADA, and. Um, in investigating the findings in Los Angeles, I was really disappointed at the way in which they dismissed many of the cases and um, pointed to some studies uh, in the questions. And um, he became very angry by my bringing up the studies. And um, it was unfortunately very, con you know, really showed his true colors and how he handled these cases. But um, one thing that's very important is um, he refused to sign a release. So you have an appearance release when you make films. He refused to sign his release. I mean, he stormed out, and um, he went pretty far with it too. Um, and um, but the one thing I'll tell you is that when someone sits in front of a camera, and they give they talk with you, and they know a camera's rolling, and they say, "Hi, I'm Steve Coley. I'm in Los Angeles today," and there's a long conversation going on, they know what they're doing. They are participating, and so that unto itself really gives you. A, the footing you need to use that material. It's always better if you have a release, but you will get into that potentially. And um, they actually, that got complicated. It's very smart of you to take note of that because it did get complicated and did require some special care. I think the, the, the voices you heard though in the room, because sometimes we, like we kept, obviously a lot of the time in the film we chose to take out our voices, you know, but in that circumstance, it was sometimes it's necessary to leave them in so that you can hear the question and hear what they refuse to answer, right? So, so that's always a choice in the edit. But I think what you heard in there was our executive producer and Trish, you know, again trying to engage with him, and he got angry. And how important was it? Sorry, how important was it for you to talk to somebody like him? I think it was very important because it gave credibility, but I also wanted to really know why the findings were so low. And he was the one in charge at the time, and there was no other voice that I really... I, I mean, they weren't so easy to give answers. I mean, law enforcement isn't particularly comfortable admitting their mistakes. It's also, though, so important. That was interview was so important because you have to talk to the people to hold them accountable who are, you know, who basically were... He was in charge. You have to... He has, he, you know, again, he ha should be given his chance to speak. And either give his reasons for things being the way they were or not, you know, and it was more of a not both in this sides, case. Right? Yeah, you have to have both sides to make it, to make it proper journalism. Did you think at all about uh, talking to somebody who was one of those folks who didn't prosecute, not didn't prosecute, but didn't bring cases to a prosecutor, thought these weren't good cases, thought they were totally justified in putting the rape kit in a closet? Did you talk to anybody like that? Yeah, I, I did speak with a few of them, um, and they uh, said, I was that guy, and I'm sorry. Um, but we didn't feel that what they shared with us was compelling enough. It didn't override what we actually came to for the film itself. It wasn't, there wasn't enough of an arc, you know, a story arc, when you talk about arc, and the, Giti was saying the circle of the story, uh, it wasn't as compelling as what we were actually getting with the survivors. Uh, sometimes you get the sort of rote, mistakes were made, you know what I mean? In the passive, passive tense. Yeah, mistakes were made, you know, and that doesn't do anything for anybody, so. I did want to ask just one more thing, which is, can you talk a little bit about what Mariska's role in all this was? Was she in, was she giving notes? Was she She was very involved. I mean, she was a producer on it, so she, I mean, I think 
she was a big part of making the contacts. She was the face of it. She built relationships. She also had the foundation. She certainly gave notes. She was deeply involved. Did you give good notes? Um, I, yeah, um, went to her house many nights and we looked at footage and cuts and she's very smart. You know, she directs herself and um, having, you know, lived in the fictional world of this and having foundation knowledge around the reality of it. But storytelling is really important, right? How do we make a compelling film that engages an audience to understand this issue? You know, you can't just put a lot of data together. You have to engage people and create empathy and raise questions. And so she had really important notes, actually, really critically pivotal notes that uh, turned the film and made it even stronger. So but she did a fantastic job. She was very passionate. I mean, that's one thing. Yeah, I mean, that's this obvious. was obviously this started with her, right? And, and so she was, it's like a life's work, I think, right? Something mean, like putting all that she's collected over time, all the information she had, um, and sort of manifesting it in a really powerful way. Hopefully that it makes an impact. So. And, and what was the discussion like about whether or not she should appear in the movie or how much she should appear in the movie? Were there versions of it where she's in it a lot more? A little bit of that stuff? She didn't want to be in the movie. Really? Like most, um, which, which actually I think was, you know, probably, she, you know, she was like, it's not about me. Yeah. She never felt it should be about her, which I think was um, all really honorable. And that shows a lot of integrity. She was like, it's about the women. It's not about me. She, but she's, she's an activist. So it was not an easy decision. There was definitely some arm twisting and hair pulling, and Sheila was part of that conversation too. Then it, it's fine to have you in the film. But it was not easy. I don't think it was easy for her. Do you agree, Trish? She doesn't have a, you know, she wasn't. Yeah, she, she, um, a big ego. And she, um, you know, feels very strongly about this issue and had been in Detroit, as you saw in the film, and she's an important figure in this fight. In fact, I don't know if we would have made as much progress as we have made on this issue if it wasn't for her. I really give her a significant amount of credit for putting this issue on the map and doing something about it. And that's the power that people, I mean, we all have individual power, you know, act locally, think globally, but she really took it globally. And um, she left no stone unturned. Yeah. She's gone to the moon and back to try to fix this. And it's getting fixed, which is great. I mean, we got to fix the culture too, but. Uh, it's important. Every one of these screenings makes a big difference. You tell friends and people talk. The communication matters and supporting people. And I feel like it should be noted that there's a lot more to be told about this. There's a lot more reporting that can be done about it. These are great local stories. That you, I mean, you know, you all can do them. I think, too, with Mariska, what's interesting is, as you see, she sort of, the way that we figure it out to make it work for her and for us and for everyone is she sort of introduces it, and, but then she's not within the body of the story, the women, and then everyone else right. takes it away. And that's really her role is to sort of give it a, you know, help th with the platform. That's about it. Yeah, and that first part where we hear about how she got invested It was in organic. It. It's so moving. Completely organic. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you Thank for making you this film. So Congratulations on your DuPont. It's a beautiful film. Thank you. Thanks again to Trish and Gita for coming up to Columbia to show their film and to talk to our students. It's a great opportunity to get context and learn some lessons from our DuPont Columbia winners. That's right. You can watch the film on HBO Go or HBO Now. I'm not really sure what the difference is between the two of them, but one, you may have one of those. So I recommend it. 
And there's a ton more info on rape kits and the work that's being done at www.iamevidencethemovie.com. Next up, Trish referenced another one of our 2019 DuPont winners, On Her Shoulders, which we just screened for Film Fridays. And we'll be bringing you that conversation that you had, Lisa, with director Alexandria Bomback in our next podcast. Yeah, it's just a gorgeous, thought-provoking film about a woman whose name is Nadia Murad. She actually just won a Nobel Peace Prize. The film was made before she won, and it deals with the kind of work she does. Uh, she, her backstory a little bit, she was captured by ISIS. She was held for many months along with other Yazidi women. And um, these are the northern Iraq people who've been persecuted and slaughtered by ISIS over the last several years. Right. Alexandria followed Nadia around the world as she tirelessly makes her case and continues to do so for her people. And it's an almost impossible task for this young woman who's just 23 years old. Thus, the film's title, On Her Shoulders. Alexandria talks about how she tackled the tricky issue of the media's role in this story and how they made it so painful for Nadia, but also were so critical to spreading her message. That's right. It's such a tricky balance. And then there was the filmmaker in the middle of all that. Was she contributing to it? Was she part of the whole thing? It's really, really... I'm glad that we can delve into these important issues, though. Yeah. And so these these last two DuPont winners both, both focus on women directors, women's issues, and it's just part of the strong year of the woman that we just celebrated at the 2019 DuPont Awards. That's right. And so that's next month's On Assignment. This episode was brought to you by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and the Columbia Journalism School. It was produced by J School grad Sarah Wyman with the help of our DuPont fellows, Christina Shaman and Sarah Jenks, and our DuPont coordinator, Lauren Marigildo Santos. Our sound engineer was AJ Mangone, and our music is by Dylan Nowak. Follow us on Twitter at DuPont Awards and visit us at onassignmentpodcast.com to hear more amazing episodes of this podcast. Until next time.